Today's episode of A New Beginning is brought to you by Harvest Partners, helping people everywhere know God. Learn more at harvest.org. And while you're there, browse our library of free ebooks designed to help you grow in your faith. We make decisions every day, some very important. Pastor Greg Laurie says we need to take the time to choose wisely. There are decisions that are super important in life. I think your career choice is a big one. Who you're going to marry, that's super big. Think about it, take your time, but the biggest decision of all, it's your decision about what you do with Jesus Christ. There is no more important decision at all. This is the day when the lost are take a road trip, you're often faced with decisions on which road to take. Sometimes there's a shortcut. Sometimes the shortcut turns out to be the long way. Sometimes an alternate route can be a fiasco or a disaster. The Donner Party comes to mind. Today on A New Beginning, Pastor Greg Laurie helps us choose the right road in life. We'll see how to evaluate our options and make the right choice. It's a message with a short title and long implications. Well, we're going through the Gospel of John together, and the title of my message is Indecision. And our text is John 18 and Matthew 27. So turn there with me if you would. John, the Gospel of John, chapter 18, and the Gospel of Matthew. If you have one of those fancy Bibles with ribbons, you might put a ribbon there in Matthew 27, because we'll pop over there a little bit later in the message. But we'll start in John 18. All right. Why don't we pray together? Father, bless our time now as we open your word. Uh, Give us ears to hear. In other words, let us pay attention. And give our attention with intention. uh, Wanting to hear what it is you would say to our hearts. And for anyone here that is maybe indecisive about some big things in life, help them to decide biblically and properly as we learn more about that in this message tonight. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Indecision. We've all experienced it at one time or another. Now some people are indecisive by nature. I'm actually not one of those people generally. In fact, I tend to be overly opinionated about too many things. I mean, I have very strong opinions on the best food to eat, the best restaurants to go to, the best this, the best that. Just ask me about anything. I'll probably have an opinion. My wife will come to me with outfit options. Should I wear this or this? And she knows I'll tell her the truth. Love that. Wear that. Or do not wear that. And you know, it sounds cruel, but she actually comes to me for honest feedback. So I'm generally very decisive, but then there are times when I'm indecisive. A lot of times I'll go to a restaurant, especially if it's a new restaurant. And what does it deal with these menus that are like the size of books? I don't like that. 
where the pages and pages and pages of options. And then the server comes. Why is it that the server comes when you don't want them to come, when you're in the middle of a conversation, can I take your order? And, and then they, I don't know if they get mad or something, but then they don't come back for like 25 minutes and you're ready to order, right? So I feel under pressure. Servers here, I'll say to Kathy, look at the menu, look at the menu, figure out what you're gonna order. And then I'll look at something and I go, oh, let me ask you about this and let me ask you about that. And, and so you have to make a decision. And that's why I like In-N-Out Burger. It's just so simple. It's just like burgers, burgers, and burgers. Awesome fries, maybe a malt. You can get two patties. You can get triple patties if you're insane. Do whatever you want to do. But these are the options. But now you go to some takeout restaurants and they have so many options like Taco Bell. What's going on over there? There's like all these gordito forditos. What is, I, I just want a burrito and a taco. And and there's all these choices and then the lines behind you and you know and you can't see the little sign till you get right there so you're looking and now you know the lines building and and you can't understand them it's like <coughs> uh what and, and so you're trying to order and then that's the pressure that's on there well these things don't matter if you order a burrito or a burger for lunch it's not a life altering decision but there are decisions that are super important in life I think your career choice is a big one. Uh, but of course the good news is that you can be in one career and you can change course and have another career later in life. So that's not engraved in stone, but that's a big one. Who you're gonna marry, that's super big. Super big. How many of you are single? You're not married. Okay, that's quite a few of you. And you know, I always say, do you look around, right? You know, cause, <laughs> so I'll say it again. Okay, look around if you see it. Because as I often say, best place to meet your future spouse is in church, right? So that is true. But having said that, I would just say take your time. Don't rush into marriage. As old Benjamin Franklin once said, and by the way, he said this to me personally. Um, (laughs) He said, keep your eyes wide open before marriage and half shut afterwards, right? (laughs) A lot of times we have our eyes half shut before marriage Then we're married for two weeks and they're open and we're like, oh my, right? So think about it, take your time. But the biggest decision of all, it's your decision about what you do with Jesus Christ. There is no more important decision at all. I bring that up because here before us in John 18 is a story of an indecisive man. A man who let others do his thinking for him. A man who tried to appease a bloodthirsty, fickle crowd in his own troubled conscience. He tried to find the middle ground and make everyone happy and his name was Pontius Pilate. He was the consummate politician. He was trying to appease everyone and thus made the worst imaginable decision. A decision, no doubt, he regretted for the rest of his life. And here was the question that was brought to him and that is eventually brought to every man and every woman. What are you going to do with Jesus? That's it. What are you going to do with Jesus? You know, ultimately when we stand before God, it won't be a sin question. It will be a son question. S-O-N. In other words, it won't be, well, did you live a good life? And did your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds? And you get to heaven. Oh, you have more bad deeds than good deeds. And you go to hell. Not at all. It's all about Jesus Christ. God's provision for us to get into heaven. 
Because conventional thinking is if we live good lives we'll get to heaven. If we live bad lives we'll go to hell. But here's the biblical truth. You can live, and some people don't like this. (laughs) You can live a wicked life and at the very end repent of your sins and you can make it into heaven. That bugs some people. Unless you're the person who repented at the end. And then you're very thankful. And then Another thing that people don't like to hear is you can live a good life, relatively speaking, a moral life, and end up in hell if you reject God's provision for you to get into heaven, who is Jesus Christ. So it's all about Jesus. Okay, so here we are chronologically in the Gospel of John. He's taken to the house of Caiaphas. He has already been cruelly beaten and rushed through a hastily prepared appearance before the religious elite of the day, the Jewish Sanhedrin. They were sort of like the Supreme Court of today, with the difference being they were religious rulers. So government and religion was intertwined at this time, so they had great power. They could decide if you would live or die. So Jesus appears before the former high priest, Annas. Annas was like a godfather-like presence over the functioning high priest who was Caiaphas. And by the way, Annas was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. So it was a family affair. And Jesus is appearing before these powerful individuals. And having confirmed that Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah, uh, they sent him to Pontius Pilate. Now, Pilate was a pagan man. He was not a religious guy. Uh, He was sent to rule over uh, these Jewish people. He didn't like his job. He probably wanted to go back to Rome where all the power was, where all the influence was. But he got chosen to take this task on and ended up presiding over the most important trial in the history of all humanity, the trial of Jesus Christ. And Pilate wanted nothing to do with Jesus, nothing to do with these religious debates, but it was dropped right in his lap. Uh, normally, around this time, Pilate would have been kicking back at his winter palace over at Caesarea, uh, sort of the Palm Springs of Israel, if you will, but right there on the water, very warm when the rest of the area is cold. Actually, the, the weather of Israel is very similar to California. So it, it reminds you of California when you're visiting Israel, as a matter of fact. So Pilate would have normally been getting a little R&R, but he had to be in Jerusalem because it was a Jewish Passover. And so there were thousands and thousands of visitors in the city, a lot of potential for trouble. And already he was walking on eggshells with the religious leaders. He had had run-ins with them uh, in the past. And, And add to this the fact that Pilate was a mean guy. He was one bad dude, actually. Here's a description of him uh, written years ago from Agrippa to Caligula, who was the emperor after Tiberius. And he made this statement about Pontius Pilate. This is an extra biblical source, but a historical one. He said, Pilate is unbending and recklessly hard. He is a man of notorious reputation, severe brutality, prejudice, savage violence, and murder. Apart from that, he's a really nice guy. No, he didn't say that. So that's Pilate for you. We would call him a hater today. This is a man who was mean, calculating, merciless, cold-hearted. He was a killer. And uh, so normally he would be quick to execute, quick to condemn someone to death. No problem with that 
at all. But now he has this situation uh, with this guy Jesus that he had heard something about but he really didn't want to deal with this. Now he's also being investigated by Rome. He was under surveillance uh, by an order of the emperor. And he was being suspected of being a bad uh, governor. So here he is in this position. A lot of pressure from Rome to not mess this up. A lot of pressure with the religious leaders because of run-ins from the past. So there were all kinds of moving parts here that made this a very unusual situation when Jesus was brought before him. Pastor Greg Laurie will have the second half of his message in just a moment. Hey everybody, what are you doing this weekend? I'd like to hang out with you at Harvest at Home. What is Harvest at Home? It is a time of worship and Bible study exclusively designed for people that are viewing in from all over the place. So you can be a part of our extended congregation at Harvest at Home. Join us this weekend, Saturday and Sunday for Harvest at Home at harvest.org. Well, today, Pastor Greg has pointed out that Pontius Pilate was under great pressure from Rome to handle the trial of Jesus properly. Let's continue now with Pastor Greg's message. Pilate was trying to find a compromise, like politicians often do. A way to appease these religious leaders, a way to not have conflict with Rome, a way to keep peace somehow. And and now Jesus is brought before him, and it's probably his gut reaction that Jesus is an innocent man. So he's trying to find some way to resolve this situation. But there were other forces at work here that were more powerful than Rome, more powerful than the religious elite. And those forces were the forces of heaven and the forces of hell. In a rare moment historically, God and Satan were moving in the same direction, but with different objectives. Satan wanted Jesus dead, and so he marshaled his forces and played his wicked hand, infiltrating the ranks of our Lord, entering the heart of Judas Iscariot. Satan felt if he could have Christ put to death, that would be the end of him. Of course, the Father also was at work in this because Scripture said that Messiah would be crucified and he would rise again from the dead three days later. So the Father was at work. That is why it's a big mistake to try to place the blame of the death of Jesus on a particular group of people. Some will say, well, the Jews killed Jesus. Well, that's really, in one sense, there's truth to it. There's also truth that the Romans killed Jesus. But if you really want to know the biblical theological truth, here it is, the Father killed Jesus. Well, what? what? The Father didn't do it. But the Father allowed it to accomplish His purposes because the Bible says it pleased the Father to bruise Him. It didn't please the Father in heaven to see His Son suffer and die. But it pleased the Father to see His righteous requirements met in the sacrifice of His Son, who is a fulfillment of all of those Old Testament pictures and types. So the Lord was at work in this as well. And by the way, Christ laid His own life down. No one took His life from Him. He voluntarily went to the cross. And one other thing, you want to put the blame on someone? Blame me. My sins put Jesus on the cross. Your sins put Jesus on the cross. So this is a very unusual situation that's all a part of God's big plan. But Pilate did have a choice 
in the matter. And he made the wrong choice. So let's read some verses together. John 18, starting at verse 28. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the Praetorium. And it was early morning. But they themselves did not go into the Praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Pilate then went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? Speaking of Jesus. So we'll stop there. So showing the complete sham of their so-called faith. They don't want to go into Pilate's headquarters, the Praetorium, because that would defile them. Yet they're in this rush to crucify an innocent man which was against everything the Torah, the Scripture, spoke of. So they're very religious and very wicked simultaneously. Oh, we, we don't want to break our ceremonial law and enter into this horrible place, the Praetorium. But by the way, will you murder Jesus in cold blood for us? Thank you very much. Talk about missing the point. This is the weird thing about religion. How people can be very religious and very wicked at the same time. Because, well, I went to church and I gave my confession to the priest or I was baptized or I received Holy Communion or I did thus and so, therefore... Now I can go out and live like hell, right? Until I go to church the next time. Man, are you missing the whole objective there? And so it's sort of a legalistic thing that these guys are observing. They wanted Pilate to do their dirty work for them. Pilate asks a legitimate question. What are your charges against this man? And as though their dignity is being impugned, they respond, well, we wouldn't have handed him over to you if he weren't a criminal. Well, Pilate says, then, Judge him according to your law. He just gave them permission to put Jesus to death if they wanted to. And by the way, they did put people to death. They did it by stoning. They stoned Stephen, you remember, the first martyr of the church. So they did have the authority, especially in this situation, to execute Jesus. But the Bible doesn't say that Messiah would die by stoning. Uh, the prophecies say that he will die by crucifixion. Psalm 22 says they pierced my hands and my feet. In the Old Testament we read the people asking him, where did you receive these wounds in your hands? And he says, I received them in the house of my friends. So scripture is very specific how Messiah would die. I don't think even they understood what they were doing, but in their mad rush to have Jesus killed, they were fulfilling prophecy to a T by specifically wanting Pilate to do it. And that's because the Romans were experts in crucifixion. They didn't invent it. Uh, they got it from the Carthaginians. And the reason the Carthaginians would crucify people is their belief was they, they should not touch the earth. They should be elevated above the earth so they would hang them on crosses. But the Romans took it to new levels of twisted, sadistic, painful torture. Uh, crucifixion was not death by nails through your hands and feet. Amazingly, you can actually survive such a thing. Uh, it was death by suffocation. And really the purpose of crucifixion was to torture a person. It was to use them as an example to anyone who would dare to defy the power of Rome. So it was not uncommon to go into Roman cities and see the streets lined with crucified men on your left and right. People were very familiar with crucifixion back in this time. But this is what scripture said that Messiah 
would die this way. They say, verse 31, we're not permitted to put anyone to death. Actually, they were, and in this case, we're told to go ahead and do it. But they were saying, no, you do it. And, uh, and by the way, Jesus himself said this is how he would die. Over in Matthew 20, he said, when we get to Jerusalem, the Son of Man's gonna be betrayed to the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. They'll sentence him to die. They'll hand him over to the Romans to be mocked, whipped, and crucified. And on the third day, he'll be raised from the dead. We're considering the circumstances and decisions that led to the crucifixion of Christ. Pastor Greg Laurie is pointing out how Pilate played a key role in the situation, but there was more to the story. And it's a real joy to have best-selling author Lee Strobel with us, former legal editor for the Chicago Tribune. He's just released a new book on the afterlife called The Case for Heaven. Uh, such great, meticulously researched information. It's absolutely fascinating. At least so many are familiar with your story. You were an atheist many years ago. Yeah. What did you believe about the afterlife back then? Yeah. You know, like a lot of atheists, I believe that it was like the light going out in a refrigerator. Wow. You close the door in the refrigerator, <laughs> the light goes out. I thought you just ceased to exist. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just as you didn't exist for millions of years before you came into being, um, now that your life is over, you just cease to exist forever. Um, and that is actually a very frightening thought, yeah, it, uh, you yeah. know? I mean, yeah. there were nights as an atheist when I would stare up into the blackness and say, really, is, is this it? I mean, it, when I die, life just goes on unchanged in this world, and, uh, and I just am snuffed out forever. Uh, it's a frightening thought. Fortunately, it's not true. <laughs> Fortunately, uh, the, the greatest news about heaven is that it's real. And the worst news about hell is that it's real. Wow. Mm. So the afterlife is, is, it is real. It is a reality. And so I think the evidence, as I present in this book, points powerfully and persuasively toward the fact that there is an afterlife. And mm. uh, so I hope people read it and get encouraged um, and realize that, you know, as um, Greg often will say, you know, where we end up spending eternity is dependent on how we respond to this yeah. offer from Jesus Christ of forgiveness and eternal life as a free yeah. gift of his grace. Yeah. You know, I think God's pre-wired us to long for something more. Definitely. You know, the Bible says that God has set eternity in our heart. Yes. And we don't know what that something more is, or to be specific, that someone more. But we think, oh, as a little kid, it's, you know, a new friend, it's a, a new bike, it, you get a little bit older, and it's a, a wife, it's a husband, it's a career, you get a little bit older, it's retirement, it's, yeah. it's security, financially, et cetera. And, and, you know, and then you keep moving forward and you find out that's not it. And, right. and I was thinking when I was a little boy, I was like 16 years old, I would lay uh, I would be awake at night, and I believed what you believed, mm. that I would cease to exist. And it freaked me out. Yeah. I thought, how can I cease to exist? Because yeah. there was that kind of that pre-wiring that there's more. Yes. And that was a search. And, of course, ultimately, I came to the same conclusion you came to. Yeah. I wasn't the legal editor of the Chicago <laughs> Tribune. I was just a confused teenager. But I, I found the same answer that you found, Lee, in a relationship with God through Jesus mm. Christ. and. So that that's the great—he gives us—he takes us from hopelessness 
to hope. Yeah, exactly. And and what you said is so true. Ecclesiastes talks about yeah. uh, God has planted eternity in our hearts. Where I see this illustrated in the life of non-believers yeah. is they try to somehow achieve immortality apart from God. Yes. And so they want to write the great novel that is going to carry their name on after they die. They're going to design a cathedral. They're going to paint a painting. They're going to they're going to put their name on the side of a building. They're going to give to a hospital and have a wing of the hospital named yeah. after them. That way I'll live on. The thing is, with you know, if there is no God, then these these vain quests for immortality amount to nothing. They amount to nothing. Wow. And what what excites me as a guy who tends to be rational and logical, respond to evidence is, you know, this is not wishful thinking. It's not make believe. It's not fairy tales. It's not mythology. Um, this is based on solid data. Uh, and, and I cite data from the Bible. I, I cite data from outside the Bible mm-hmm. to say that mm-hmm. there is good evidence that we do indeed live on mm-hmm. uh, forever in one place or another. So if you want to know more about what Lee is addressing here, you want to get a copy of his brand new book called The Case for Heaven. And we'll send it to you for your gift of any size this month. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, your gift helps us reach out with hope to so many each and every month. In fact, we received a comment from a listener who said, Thank you, Pastor Greg, for today's message. I recently lost my husband of 20 years. It's been hard. Thank God I know Jesus. My husband loved Jesus, too. Your sermons on heaven have helped me through the toughest times. Even up to his last moments, we were trusting God. The Holy Spirit definitely used your sermons to comfort me. Well, that's such good confirmation of the value of these daily studies, and it's confirmation that your investments are making a difference. Why not make an investment today? And when you do, we'd like to send you Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Heaven. And today is our last day to make this resource available, so contact us right away. Call us at 1-800-821-3300. We're here around the clock. That's one 800 821 or go online to harvest.org. Well, next time, as Pastor Greg continues his studies from the series called Life, we'll gain more insight on the role Pontius Pilate played in the trial and crucifixion of Christ and how that was the event that paid the price for our sins. Join us here on A New Beginning with pastor and Bible teacher Greg Laurie. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to this podcast. To learn more about Harvest Ministries, follow this show and consider supporting it. Just go to harvest.org. And to find out how to know God personally, go to harvest.org and click on Know God.